0: section three of the world war this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the world story volume 15 the world war edited by horatio w dresser section three the outbreak of hostilities by major f. e wheaton to every foreign office in europe that portion of the continent known by the general title of the Balkans, had long been the subject of uneasy speculation. It had gained for itself such appellations as thundercloud, volcano, danger spot, and magazine, and one fraction of it, Bosnia, was to show that such reputation was not undeserved. That state had been handed over to Austria for administration after the Russo-Turkish war, and in 1908, was definitely annexed, the action of Austria being theatrically supported by Germany in the face of the joint protests of England, France and Russia. Six years later, the spark was lit in Bosnia, which set all Europe ablaze. The population of Bosnia is overwhelmingly Slav both in race and in sympathy, but by a regrettable imprudence, the visit of the Archduke was allowed to coincide with the celebration of an anniversary sacred to Slav national feeling. Whether it was this blunder that cost the heir apparent his life is not certain, but at any rate, the Archduke and his wife, who had accompanied him, were within a few hours assassinated by a Bosnian student. The thrill of horror which ran through Europe soon subsided, and at first, the tragedy seemed destined to be but a nine-days' wonder. But in the weeks which followed, Austria, convinced that the outrage was the outcome of anti-Austrian intrigue in Serbia, was busily formulating her demands and presented them on July 23rd. The terms of the ultimatum were harsh in the extreme, and in her distress, Serbia had recourse to Russia the traditional protector of Slav peoples. On the advice of her ally, Serbia forwarded her reply within the 48 hours allowed, accepting the demands with but two reservations. Austria's answer was to recall her ambassador, and two days later, she declared war on Serbia. The fact that Europe was grouped by treaties into what were practically two armed camps was sufficient to set the machinery of diplomacy working at full pressure throughout the continent and to cause the other powers to stand at once on the alert. Russia was disinclined to stand aside and witness the humiliation of her protégé by Austria and France was bound to stand by Russia, although her direct interests in Serbia were infinitesimal. On the other side, Germany and Italy were leagued with Austria by the terms of the Triple Alliance. Five great powers were thus immediately confronted with the possibility of war. England was bound to neither side, but she did not fail to take an important precautionary step which circumstances rendered possible. A test mobilization of the 3rd Fleet had been carried out on July fifteenth, and a few days later the first second and third fleets had assembled at spithead for inspection by the king thence the various squadrons proceeded to sea for tactical exercises which terminated on july twenty fourth it had been arranged that manoeuvre leave should now be granted to the first fleet but at midnight twenty sixth twenty seventh this was cancelled by the admiralty and the navy was ordered to stand fast and England was thus enabled to watch the course of events in comparative security. On Wednesday the twenty-ninth of July, the political tension of Europe had almost reached breaking point. Austria was, indeed, actually at war with Serbia, and was bombarding the Serbian capital Belgrade. England had dispatched part of her navy to sea while holding all her squadrons in home waters in a state of instant readiness. But there was nothing aggressive in her action, for her foreign secretary was making superhuman efforts to induce the great powers to summon a conference to mediate in the Austro-Serbian quarrel. Belgium, unfortunately caught in the middle of army reorganization, was hurriedly preparing herself for eventualities by mobilisation. Germany had recalled her high-seas fleet. German troops in Metz had been pushed forward to the frontier, and the German people were withdrawing their deposits from the savings banks in considerable haste. Russia had ordered the mobilisation of her southern armies, France was anxiously inquiring of England what the action of the latter would be in case of a general conflagration. On the following day, the British Foreign Secretary made fresh proposals for a European Council, but war loomed appreciably nearer every hour. Germany demanded that Russia should stop the mobilization of her forces, to which Russia replied that such step was technically impossible and therein the German Emperor proclaimed a period of national danger. In England, it was recognized that the gravity of the situation demanded every military precaution. All officers and men of the regular army who were absent from their units were recalled by telegraph, while units in training areas were directed to return at once to their mobilization centers. On the 31st of July, The Foreign Secretary telegraphed to the French and German governments, asking whether they would respect the neutrality of Belgium, provided it were not violated by another power. France gave the required assurance. Germany did not reply. Austria had now issued orders for general mobilization. Belgium followed suit. The general anxiety had by this reached Holland, and a complete mobilization of her forces was decreed. Switzerland was preparing to resist any violation of her neutrality. These were happenings ominous enough for one day, but graver news was yet to follow. Late in the evening, the French ambassador was informed by his government that French territory had been penetrated by German patrols. These were, however, but the warnings of the tempest. The storm burst on the evening of Saturday, August the 1st. About five o'clock, Germany declared war on Russia. Orders were issued for a general mobilisation of the German army and similar instructions were promulgated in France. Money, always sensitive to political shock, reflected the magnitude of the disaster. In England, the markets went to pieces, the bank rate rose to 10% and the London Stock Exchange was closed. On Sunday, the 2nd of August, a German force, comprised chiefly of some of the covering troops from Koblenz advanced on Luxembourg. This grand duchy, about the size of an English county, had been declared neutral territory by a treaty of 1867. The object of the movement was to seize the railways running through the state toward France and to utilize them for the movement of German troops. At the same time, Three German army corps were moved toward the frontier at Aix-la-Chapelle, ready for an advance through Belgium. There, the war office was laboring in frantic haste to place the country in a state of defense, and 30,000 navies had all day been digging trenches round Liège. About seven o'clock in the evening, a note was presented by Germany. If German troops were allowed to pass through Belgium without molestation, her independence would be guaranteed by Germany, and the latter country would indemnify Belgium for all damage. The German government asked for an answer within 12 hours. Some hours before this demand was made, England had assured France that, should the German fleet undertake hostile operations against the French coast or shipping, the British Navy would render France every assistance in its power. The naval reserves were called up in the United Kingdom and orders were issued by the military authorities for the precautionary period to begin. Troops were dispatched to supplement the garrisons of coast defences, important bridges, tunnels, etc., upon the lines of railway were placed under guard and the cable offices of the Kingdom were submitted to military censorship and control. During the day, German troops definitely invaded France, for bodies of troops larger-than-me mere reconnoitering patrols entered the country and penetrated several miles into the interior. These forces entered at seven different places between Longueville and the Vosges. The French had withdrawn all troops 10 kilometers from the frontiers in order to render it clear that Germany was the aggressor. On the Eastern Front, Germany had followed up her declaration of war with Russia by moving troops across the Polish frontier and seizing three towns on a front of a 100 miles, while at sea, a German cruiser ineffectually bombarded the Russian port of Libau. At 4 a.m. on Monday, the 3rd of August, the Belgian government issued a dispatch refusing the German offer, and during the day the King of the Belgians appealed to England for assistance. In Belgium, the bulk of the armed forces received orders to concentrate on Liège. That afternoon, the Foreign Secretary of England, in a stirring speech in the House of Commons, insisted upon the impossibility of England remaining inactive should the neutrality of Belgium be violated. Later in the evening, German troops crossed the Belgian frontier en route for the attack of the fortress of Liège, and before the day closed, the French and German ambassadors had left Berlin and Paris, respectively, and England was now faced with choice between peace or war. The 4th of August brought matters to a crisis so far as she was concerned early in the day information was received of germany's offer to belgium and of the categorical refusal by the latter country later came the news that german troops had crossed the belgian frontier Instructions were at once telegraphed to the British ambassador in Berlin, directing him to obtain from the German government an assurance that Belgium's wishes would be respected. In the event of this guarantee not being given, the ambassador was to return home forthwith. Midnight was the time fixed for the reply. But about 11pm, the ambassador received his passports, and England and Germany, were at war. Hostilities had, indeed, already begun. That very night, the Hamburg American liner, Königin-Louise, was busily employed in laying mines off the eastern coast of Great Britain. End of section three. This recording is in the public domain. Read by Iswa in Belgium in May 2021.